Hello, thank you for your interest in the Ocean Mind Sangha. Uh, these uh, talks are recorded live. I give them from the south of Mexico, where I live. And they usually happen on Wednesday evenings during our sit, our Wednesday sit. And we offer these talks freely. But if you would like to offer a donation, know that that is always much, much appreciated. Um, your support allows me to dedicate more time to writing and teaching about the Dharma. Uh, it supports the operations of the Ocean Mind Sangha, and it allows us to offer scholarships, especially for classes, uh, for people who might need them. Uh, if you would like to offer a donation, you can visit uh, my website at vanessasuisegoddard.org. Thank you again for your practice and your support. May we purify an ocean of worlds. May we free an ocean of beings. May we see an ocean of dharma. May we realize an ocean of wisdom. May we purify an ocean of activities. May we fulfill an ocean of aspirations. May we make offerings to an ocean of Buddhas. May we practice without discouragement for an ocean of eons. So tonight, tonight I want to talk about simplicity. You know, we recently watched the film series, The Week, about the climate crisis. And we talked a little bit about the work that we're, that we're being asked to do, right, to address it, the work that the Earth is asking us to do, that our lives are asking us to do, that our vows are asking for. And then last week, we, we did a study session on the eighth grave precept, give generously, do not be withholding. And given this, I wanted, I wanted to speak about simplicity as, um, you know, as a quality of being, yes, but as a type of generosity as a generosity of spirit, of view, and certainly of action. All of these, which we express as we make our way through the world, or, or not, but hopefully we do, in alignment with our vows. Now together, as a Sangha, we regularly chant the Karaniya Metta Sutta, right? the Buddha's teaching on loving kindness. And the beginning speaks, I think, very directly to, to this quality of simplicity. Right? It starts, this is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. Let me be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, 
contented and easily satisfied. And recently I've been, I've been reflecting that if we could just do that, be truly contented and satisfied, everything else would be taken care of. If we could be truly contented and satisfied. And so then what is required to be contented truly? Well, to be really satisfied with what we have and with who we are. So maybe we can look at this together. But actually, let me first remind all of us, you know, that, that the version that we chant in the Ocean Mind Sangha is a little bit different from the original. I changed the pronouns to make the liturgy more direct, more personal. So the original uh, in the translation that we use, which I think is by Bhikkhu Nanamuli, I'm not exactly sure, I, I can't remember, but it's um, on, online in that Access to Insight website, which lists so many of the, the sutras. And so the original of this version says, this is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. Let them be able and upright. Let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. Let none deceive another, etc. And so, you know, we could think of this chant as being written as an instruction manual for loving kindness, for peace, for joy and contentment. It implicitly asks, do you want to be peaceful? Do you want to live your life well? If the answer is yes, this is what you must do. Be able and upright. Able, it doesn't specify what this ability is, but if we, if we take the uprightness that, that follows, it, it, it is that straightforwardness to not deceive others, to not dislike them, whatever their state, whatever their, their place, whatever their being. Radiate kindness to everyone you meet. And don't do anything that the wise would find fault with. But as I was taking up this liturgy again for myself, for my personal liturgy, I really wanted to place myself in the middle of that work, of that practice that this chant requires. And so with humility, I changed it to read, let me be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech. I won't deceive another. 
let me not do the slightest thing that I would later regret. Not because the opinion of the wise is not important, but because more than the reproof of others, I don't want to cause my own regret. I don't want to not be satisfied with my own actions. In the moment or in, retros in retrospect. Right? I want my life to be simple in the sense of being congruent, right? to live what I say, the way that I think, so that I'm not fragmented, but whole. And so, in a way, I turned the chant into a vow, because I needed it. I needed that reminder and that guidance and that focus. This is what I will do because this is the person I want to be. And so I did it first and foremost to help myself, right? to help myself remember. And then I thought, well, you know, why not share it? I mean, we can all use that reminder. So. Humbly, again, why not? But really, the message is the same. Be simple and straightforward in your manner. Don't be deceitful. Don't be conceited. Don't be constantly chasing after things. For the simple reason that none of this will lead to your own peace. And it won't lead to peace in the world, to the balance that we need if we're to take care of ourselves, of each other, of this earth, our home. Often, I speak of the fact that what we see makes what we live, that our thoughts shape our actions, and that these in turn shape what we experience of ourselves and of the world. And so when we look at the world from a place of lack, for example, what we see all around us is what we're missing. If what we see in our minds is conflict, conflict is what we see and what we'll create in the world. It's actually a very simple equation. There's that famous passage in the Vimalakirti Sutra, which we will be studying this winter. You know, at the beginning of the sutra, there's all these thousands upon thousands upon thousands of arhats and bodhisattvas and gods and humans. They all gather together in this little grove outside of Vaisali to hear the Buddha's teaching. And before the Buddha starts speaking, 
500 of the young bodhisattvas come forward and they lay down their parasols before the Buddha as an offering. And the Buddha takes all of these parasols and he turns them into the net of Indra. He turns them into this, this single covering replete with jewels that encompasses the whole cosmos. And when you look in it, you can see all the galaxies and all the planets, and in each planet, all the countries, in all the cities, in all the villages, and in each of these places, thousands upon thousands of Buddhas, all proclaiming the teachings. And so naturally, the assembly sees this, and they're just blown away. And they offer verses of praise to the Buddha, and then they say to him, you know, having seen what they just saw, this multiverses, they say to the Buddha, well, what is the Bodhisattva's purification of the Buddha field? I mean, really, how did you just do what you just did? And the Buddha says, the purity of the Buddha field reflects the purity of living beings. And then he goes through this long list. It reflects their resolve, their virtue, their aspiration, their determination, their generosity. In essence, Buddha is as Buddha does. In essence, he's saying, your actions will create your world your environment. And Shariputra, one of the Buddha's foremost disciples, is listening to all this, and he looks around and he thinks to himself, what Buddha field? What Buddha field? I'm in this, this mess? If this is a Buddha field, then the Buddha's mind must have been impure when he created it, because, I mean, come on. And the Buddha, of course, read, reads Sariputra's mind, a great skill to have when you're teaching. And he says, what do you think, Shariputra? Is it because the sun and the moon are impure that those who are blind from birth can't see them? And Shariputra says, no, of course not. It's just that those who are blind can't see them. It's not the fault of the sun and the moon. I mean, if anything, it's the fault of those who are blind. It's not the fault of the oceans that they're being choked with plastic. <clears throat> it's not the fault of those same oceans that turn into deserts. There was an article recently, and I don't remember, there was a sea somewhere that is now a desert, that forests are bare fields, you know, just stumps scattered all over them. And so the Buddha says to Shariputra, well, exactly, just so, in the same way, is not the Buddha's field's fault that you don't see it as pure. 
The Buddha field is pure. You just don't see it. Let me repeat that. The Buddha field is pure. You just don't see it. But how is this not just greenwashing or whitewashing? How is this not just wishful thinking? How is this not ignoring all the many sorrows, all the forms of suffering in the world? And then it's worth reflecting, what's the difference between Shariputra's mind and the mind of all the bodhisattvas? What are they seeing that he doesn't see yet? Remember that line in the Mountains and River Sutra, Master Dogen says, is it that there are various ways of seeing an object? Or is it that we have mistaken various images for one object? Is it that there are Buddha fields and not Buddha fields? Or is it that there are different ways of seeing what's in front of us? How does this apply to Gaza and Ukraine? How does this apply to those places that have been ravaged by wildfires and hurricanes? tornadoes, hundred-year floods. Will these happenings go away if we adjust our seeing? You realize these are not philosophical questions. The Vimalakirti Sutra is just packed with these profound, some of them, philosophical teachings, but none of them are meant to remain abstract. I can think of many moments in my life, many moments, where I do not see the purity of the Buddha field. And so even though the Buddha says it to him, even though he's, he's, he's telling him, even though he's telling him how it is, Chariputra still doesn't get it. Maybe he doesn't believe what the Buddha says. Some part of him doesn't believe it, or some part of him he just... He doesn't see it. He doesn't see it yet. Because when a Brahmin says, well, to me, this Buddha field is a type of heaven. And again, Shariputra is thinking to himself, I mean, really? Actually, here he speaks out loud. He says, you know, when I look at this earth, all I see is its highs and its lows, its peaks and abysses. It's as if the whole thing was just completely covered in shit. He just says it. He just calls it as he sees it. Fulfilling the role that he often plays in the sutras. You know, where he's 
where he's voicing the question that you know so many people reading the sutra or so many people perhaps even in that audience are thinking but nobody dares to ask he's like really this is a buddha field how is this a buddha field and i believe that he really wants to know that he's that he's he's feeling that pain in that moment he's feeling that conflict he's, i want to see this as a buddha field who wouldn't want to see it who want who wouldn't want to see what the buddha sees and he knows he's not there and he's saying show me how how is this a buddha field As long as humans have had the power of reason, asking, how can a god allow the horrors that we have perpetrated on one another? How could a merciful god allow that? How can you have that perfection and have this pain? How is that possible? I look out at the world and it seems so hard, so relentless. And again, the Brahman says to him, you know, the fact that you see this Buddha field as so impure, my dear Shariputra, is a sure sign that there are highs and lows in your mind. He's not blaming him. He's not saying, oh, you poor, deluded thing. No, you're just blind. He too is calling it as he sees it. Very plainly, these highs and lows are in your mind. And they are exactly the highs and lows in the world. Given that there is nothing outside of mind, there is no way to separate what happens inside from what happens outside. And that is why it is so important, so crucial, and I repeat this often, to train our minds. Meister Eckert spoke about this in a way, he, he was referring to God. But given the way things work, I changed it a little bit, and it still works. Apprehend who you are in all things, for you are in all things. Every single creature is full of you, and it's a book about you. Every creature is a word of your life. I really like that line. Every creature is a word of your life. If I spent enough time with the tiniest creature, even a caterpillar, I would never have to prepare a sermon. So full of me is all of creation. Remember this line, if I spent enough time, because we'll return to it. 
And so Shariputra, <clears throat> since he too is in all things, his mind is reflected in them. And so what he sees are the highs and lows, the peaks and the abysses. All he can see is that shit piled high and stinking. But then the Buddha touches the ground with his big toe and immediately the Buddha field is just covered with jewels. And he says, Shariputra, do you see it now? And Shariputra says, I see it. I see it. I've never seen a Buddha field such as this. Because it has to look a certain way for him to recognize it. Like that koan where Deshan has this Dharma encounter. I mean, he's really decimated by the old tea lady, the nameless tea lady by the side of the road. And when it's all over, he says to her, oh, can you point me to a teacher? Hello? We miss what's right in front of our eyes because we think it doesn't look like it should. And so what if we just stop thinking it should look a particular way? And so finally, Shariputra gets it. But the interesting thing is that after all that, the Buddha says, you know, I make this Buddha field look as if it was covered with shit. And you know why? To bring about the maturity of living beings. Isn't that interesting? He's saying, what you see right now are the highs and lows. What you see are the peaks and, ab and abysses, the horror and the ugliness and the conflict and the sorrow. But train your mind. Mature in what you will see will be quite different. It's not that there's no trouble in the world. It's that we don't understand who creates it and how. And so that's our job. That's our job to understand that as clearly as we can. So we can choose not to create it. And so, what does this have to do with simplicity? <clears throat> you know, it's not even that we make do with less in order to save the planet. It's not that we have to sacrifice the things that we like, you know, not enjoy the many wonderful, incredible, amazing things that the world offers us but that we recognize how much we have, how much life 
overflows with life. And that therefore we don't need to keep taking and making things that don't actually add anything. Right? But that strip away that feels beauty. When we were watching the films, I mentioned Yvonne Srinard. I couldn't remember his name, but Yvonne Srinard is the founder of Patagonia. And he said, you know, there's really, there's no such thing as a, a sustainable company. He said, because we always take from the earth much more and much faster than what we can put back. He actually said it much more colorfully, kind of in line with the sutra. He said, every piece of crap, because it was manufactured, contains within it something of the priceless. Applied human intelligence for one, natural capital for another. Something taken from the forest or a river or the soil that cannot be replaced faster than we can deplete it. We're wasting our brains and our only world on the design, production, and consumption of things we don't need and aren't good for us. And so he made it his business to create a responsible company which is how the book that this quote was taken from is called. You know, and I read it when I was at Zen Mountain Monastery and I became director of operations of Dharma Communications. It was really the, the outreach arm, the educational arm. And a big part of my job was to oversee the catalog for our stores our physical store, which was small, and our online store, which was considerable. And, you know, in general, we sold good things. You know, we sold cushions, and we sold statues, and malas, and incense, you know, all the things that we would use as practitioners. But it was all stuff. It was all stuff. Stuff that gets made, and gets used, and eventually thrown out. And I wanted to see, you know, can we make sure that we're not selling crap, but things that as much as possible are using our resources responsibly. And it wasn't perfect by any means, but generally we knew our suppliers. Many of them were local, or at least were based in the U.S., which meant you didn't have to ship the materials around the world. Some of them worked hard, those who made our cushions, at least then, I, I don't know now, um, worked hard to not waste anything in the process, the pieces of fabric, the way the, the, the one um, supplier for cushions that we were working on at one point had the measurements exact. He knew in a bolt, with a bolt of fabric, how many zabutons and zafus he could cut out to minimize the amount of waste with that fabric. And when he told me that, I said, I want to work with you. <clears throat> now, not all of it was like that. But we were trying. 
We were trying to be responsible. And so let me offer that responsibility and awareness go hand in hand with the practice of simplicity. Right? The practice of holding what we have carefully, tenderly. What we have, what we make, what we discard. I was rereading again recently um, this book by Deepama. I always go to this book. There's one little book about her teachings that I've been able to find. And um, but whenever I feel I want to reinvigorate my practice, I just go to this book because her life was really extraordinary. And um, she was the Vipassana movement, as we know it now, she was one of the teachers of the founders of Insight Meditation. So Joseph Goldstein, Jack Kornfield, Sharon Salzberg, Sylvia Burstein, they all went to China, to, not to China, to India to study with her. And they all spoke about how incredibly humble and kind and simple she was and how piercing her concentration and her insight, how fierce she could be, as well as loving. And her main teaching was the whole path of mindfulness is this, whatever you're doing, be aware of it. That's it. That's it. Whatever you're doing, be aware of it. But what did that mean? And so one student described, and she would come into the room one afternoon, they were all gathered, and she came into the room and picked up this little plastic duck that must have belonged to her grandchild. And she took it over to a plastic basin by the windowsill, and she very lovingly, in the soft afternoon light coming from the window, began bathing this little duck. And he said it was like a baptism this dirty plastic toy became a sacred object in her hands, in the relationship that she had with it. And so it sounds so simple, whatever you do, be aware of it. And it is quite simple. And it turns the ordinary into the sacred. And just to give you a taste of her, her awareness, her level of awareness, she said once to Jack Cornfield, how's your practice? How's your practice going? Do you have any thoughts? He's like, what do you mean? Of course, millions, millions of thoughts. She's like, stop them. He's like, well, I mean, I can, but it takes an enormous amount of effort, a tremendous samadhi. And she's like, no, you sit down and you just do it. Now, I know the point is not to stop thinking. We speak of that often. But that was seen, wasn't even what she was speaking of. The point was to pay attention 
that's what she was saying. Make the effort to be fully there, so fully that the entire cosmos is sitting on your cushion, is bathing that rubber duck. We could also just ask ourselves, are we in relationship? Are we in a responsible relationship with the thing, the person, the place before us? And then do we know its nature? Because ultimately that is the crux of it, right? That's what it all boils down to. What is this? And how do I relate to that? with awareness, with responsibility, with simplicity. And so, if we wonder how to be contented and satisfied, how to be gentle and straightforward, we can once again take guidance from Deepama because she would ask certain questions of her students. She would say, can you live so that everything you do is blessed? Every joy, every sorrow, every person. And then she'd say, have you let yourself look into what is true? Not Are you looking? Do you see? Have you studied? Are you practicing? But have you let yourself look into what is true? What does that mean? It has to mean that it's already here, that it's already fully present. and that we have to let ourselves see it. That we have to let go of what we know or think we know and give ourselves permission to see what is true, to see that Buddha field replete with jewels. but they don't look the way that we expect them to. Thank you for listening. Uh, If you would like to listen to more talks, you can visit my website at vanessasuisegoddard.org. And if you'd like to offer a donation, know that there always much, much appreciated. Uh, They allow me to dedicate more time to writing about and teaching the Dharma. They uh, support the operations of the Ocean Mind Sangha. And they also allow us to offer scholarships for people who might need them. Uh, So we always, always very much appreciate your practice and your support. Thank you.